chapter 13, uh, we're in verse 22, 22 through 35 uh, this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your love for us. We're thankful for your grace and your mercy that you desire a relationship with us. We thank you that you're here with us. We just ask that you would bless our time in your word. Holy Spirit, would you meet us in the midst of the joys and the challenges of this week? Would you bring us comfort? Would you bring us challenge? Just pray that your word would bring forth fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem with the purpose and intent of laying his life down upon the cross. This was on his radar. This was his focus. And as he's coming to Jerusalem, he's stopping at different villages and cities, and he is sharing and he is teaching. Out of this, there's this question of, Lord, is there few that are saved? And we don't know why this question was asked, but it may have been due to the response to Jesus' teaching. Possibly one of the disciples thinking, well, people aren't responding the way that I thought that they would. Is, is there a lot that are saved or is there a few that are saved? And then Jesus gives instruction on the narrow way, on the narrow gate. That there's a broad path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads uh, to life. Let's look at verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. In Luke 9, uh, verse 51, it says that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew that he would be crucified. And this is the purpose for which he came, was to lay down his life for our sins. He knew that he would be punished, that he would become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. And it's almost we get to this place in Jesus' life where nothing is going to stop him, nothing is going to deter him from going to Jerusalem to willingly lay his life down to be crucified for us. And this is the love of Jesus. This is his love for us, the joy that was set before him. And he endured the cross, the joy of being reunited with the Father, the joy of providing forgiveness for us, inheriting his bride. So he's journeying towards Jerusalem, teaching at these cities as he goes. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? It's a good question. Is, is there a lot? Is there a few? Maybe there was some rejection when it comes to the teaching of Christ. And Jesus responds and said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter it and will not be able. This word strive in the Greek, it actually means to agonize. If there's something in your life where you, you've agonized, maybe it's something physical, a physical challenge, a difficult job, maybe you've agonized through school. The idea is to, to put effort or to make every effort that you're going through the narrow gate. Now, what is the narrow gate? We know the narrow gate is Jesus. The narrow gate is the gospel. On Wednesday night, Dominic Dunn gave a great message here at RMC about Jesus being the only way. If you missed it, I encourage you to go to the website and listen to it. But Jesus makes exclusive claims, doesn't he, when it comes to salvation. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a narrow gate, isn't it? Only through Christ. And if salvation is through others 
then Christ is minimized. But if Christ is the only one that can provide salvation, then he indeed is God. There's a narrow way. What this passage is not saying is that we have to work to earn or deserve our salvation. Just work hard enough and then you can be saved. There's no way that we can save ourselves through our own works and our own efforts. What this is emphasizing is make sure that you know the gospel. Make sure that you trust that Jesus is God, that he died for your sins and he rose again, that you've placed your faith in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's the narrow gate. And as we've trusted Christ and we've followed Christ, then we've entered into eternal life. Jesus also spoke of the narrow gate in Matthew 7. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in it by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. You may feel that you're on the narrow way. When you look around at your workplace, there's not any others that are trusting Christ as their Savior. You're on your college campus and you're not experiencing a professor who is professing Jesus Christ. You look in your family and maybe there aren't any other family members who know Christ. You look at our culture and you you see a culture that's rejecting Christ. Well, church, this is the way it's always been. We are on the narrow way. And the narrow way is difficult, but it leads to life. Amen? It leads to eternal life. But broad is the way that leads to destruction. Broad is the way of selfishness. Broad is the way of self-indulgence. But where does that lead to? Well, it leads to destruction. The destruction of our life here and now and eternally lost, this rejection of, of Christ as our Savior. You might be asking, do I have eternal life? I mean, that's an important question to examine. In 1 John, he gives us some assurances of salvation. And I love this. This is 1 John 5, 13. He says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. John says, this is how you know that you have eternal life. If you've believed in the name of the Son of God. The name of the Son of God is the character and nature of Jesus Christ. Not, you know you have salvation if you attend church. You know you have salvation if you give a tithe check. No, you know that you have salvation if you believe. A lot of things flow out of that belief. As we believe in Christ, Christ moves in our lives. But the way that we know that we know that we're saved is this belief and what Jesus has done for us. And if there's a question this morning in your heart and your mind, if you've trusted Christ as your savior, God would want to bring you to that place of trusting in Jesus, of putting your full weight and dependence upon him, that he loves you, that he died for you, that the gospel is for you because it's belief in Christ and what he's done that results in salvation. Also in 1 John, it says, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. God puts in us a heart for believers, not perfection, but we find ourselves loving believers. You may have some friends that are closer to you than biological family that are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the work of the Lord in in your life. There's this fruit of caring for brothers and sisters in Christ. 
I love this in Romans 8, verse 14. It says, for as many are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. The Holy Spirit leading us. Ever feel convicted of sin as a believer, as the child of God? That's a good thing. That's evidence of the, the Spirit of God in our lives. People that don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ oftentimes don't feel any conviction of sin because they don't know the Lord, right? Before you knew Christ as your Savior, there probably wasn't conviction of sin. But we lose our temper, we get angry, we're bitter, covetousness, and something doesn't feel right. That, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leading us, the, the Holy Spirit guiding us. It's evidence that we're the sons of God. But Jesus, in this answer to this question, are there a lot that are saved? He says, narrow is the gate and make sure that you've trusted Christ as your Savior. In verse 25 When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. How many movies have there been where the door closes and they get under the door just at the last minute, and then they forget their hat? Indiana Jones, right? I think that was the first of that and many movies have, have followed. And Jesus is saying there's an urgency here. That at some point it comes to where this door, this gate of entering into eternal life is closed. In Hebrews chapter 9 it tells us that, and it's appointed for men to die once, but after that is the judgment. So in this lifetime we have the opportunity to trust Christ as our Savior, to enter into this narrow gate. But if we reject Christ, say no to the gospel, think, I can do this on my own, I don't need anyone to save me, this rejection of Jesus, if that continues to be the heart of someone until they pass away, it's too late. The door is closed. They can't change their mind at that point. And they will become a believer after their death. Philippians 2 tells us, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but unfortunately, it will be too late. I think of the flood. Noah is led by God to build this huge boat because judgment is coming. God brings animals to the boat. He's being mocked, but then God sends the flood. And there were those that were pounding on the door, but God had shut the door. Noah didn't shut the door. God had shut the door and it was too late for them to enter into the ark. Don't wait. Maybe you're at a point where you're like, oh, I'll trust Jesus down the road in my life. No, now's the time. You don't know when you're going to step into eternity. We don't know when we're going to pass away. For me, growing up in a Christian home, I often thought, well, yeah, I'll, I'll trust Christ and follow Christ when I'm older, like when I get married and then I guess you're supposed to take your kids to church and those type of things. But it's like, I want to do my own thing. This is the time in my life to, to do my own thing. No, this is the time in life to trust Christ. This is the time in Christ, time in life to, to believe in Christ before it's too late. In verse 26, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Those that aren't able to enter in. They're saying, but we hung out together. We enjoyed Chipotle together. We ate and drank in your presence. We went to In-N-Out. They got verses on the bottom of the cup. Like, I'm in, right? Like, we had an In-N-Out burger together. I heard your teachings. 
I listened to your podcast. I, I read the Bible. I, I, was, I was familiar. Thinking that familiar resulted in a relationship. And Jesus, the emphasis here is he says, I don't know you. I don't know you. I'm not in relationship with you. And that's probably the most terrifying thing to stand before the Lord and the Lord to say, hey, hey, I don't know you. But wait a second. I'm familiar with you. I went to church. I I read the scriptures. I, I know the verses. And see, this is the difference between familiarity and belief. Because when we believe that Jesus is God, when we believe that he died for our sins and rose again, we're the children of God. Again, not perfect. Show me a perfect child of God, right? And I'll take a a big, big gulp filled with ice and throw it in their face. And we'll see how perfect they are, right? (laughs) All of us are sinners. All of us need a savior. We're we're sinners that are saved by grace. but, But through this belief in the gospel, we're the children of God. And he knows us. And we know him. Don't make this mistake of simply thinking that being around the things of God or or being around Jesus is the same as a relationship with Jesus. But he will say, I tell you, I did not know you. Where you are from, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Jesus saying, I don't know you. You didn't believe in me. You didn't trust me. You didn't enter in through this narrow gate. And part of rejecting the gospel is then we stand before God based on our own merit. And Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Jesus describes hell as weeping and gnashing of teeth. It speaks of the suffering that's in hell. Jesus described hell as a lake of fire, outer darkness, a a worm that, that dies not. He seems to be speaking towards a Jewish audience that would care about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom and eternal life, but they're thrust out. This would be a shocking message to the Jews because they're in a place of thinking, because I'm a descendant of Abraham, I'm in. And would also assume that Gentiles had no chance of being saved. Just by the fact that they were non-Jewish, they were fuel for the fires of hell. Talk about some racism, right? This division between Jews and Gentiles, but because I'm a Jew... I'm an automatic in. And this teaching that Christ would give that, no, you have to believe in me. I am the way. I'm the truth and the life. You don't get the automatic in because you're the child of Abraham. This would be offensive to the Romans because the Romans are living in a pagan, pluralistic society and culture where they worshiped a lot of gods. And so for Jesus to say, I alone in God, I am alone the way of salvation, that would be offensive to them. I think it's important for us to just pause for a few moments. And as hard as it is, let the gravity of hell hits our hearts and our lives. You can go to a lot of churches in America today and never hear the word hell mentioned. But Jesus spoke of hell, didn't he? I don't think it's wise for us to erase words in our Bibles. 
And if we lose sight of hell, as difficult as it is, I do think we lose sight of an important truth. Oftentimes in our lives, even as believers, we have a hard time navigating suffering. But if we think about it this way, this is the most difficult that our life is ever going to get. If you believe the gospel, if you're the child of God, you're not going to hell. That's good news this morning. You have got an eternity to be able to look forward to. But if we lose sight of this reality of hell, we lose sight of what Jesus has saved me from. There's a lot of people that really have a hard time with the biblical teaching of hell that God would hold us accountable for our sin. Talk to a Holocaust survivor and ask them what they think about a just God holding people accountable for their sin. They'll tell you, they would describe to you and say, I hope that God holds the people accountable who killed my family members, who took me to a concentration camp. God's holy and he has to hold sin accountable. I suggest to you it's not scandalous that God holds accountable. I need to buy a vowel this morning. (laughs) 11 o'clock could be interesting. It's not scandalous that God holds us accountable for our sin. What's more scandalous is that God gives us heaven, that God gives us his son. I mean, imagine someone that has committed sin, that's held accountable, they're standing before a judge, and the judge is like, yeah, you're guilty. But I'm going to pay the penalty for you and just lavish grace, lavish goodness. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you're busted and you should be held accountable, but instead of someone holding you accountable, they lavish grace upon you. What's more scandalous is the gift of heaven. What are we going to care about when we get to heaven? What's really going to matter? It's going to be Jesus. It's going to be seeing him. It's going to behold him. And then I think shortly after that, we're going to start to go, man, are my loved ones around the throne room of God? Are my kids around the throne room of God? Are my parents, my brother, my, my sister, my neighbors, my, my co-workers, are they around the throne room of God? Did they trust Jesus? Did they enter into this, this narrow gate? But if we lose sight of hell, we start to lose sight of what's really important in this life. And all of a sudden, I own a bike, but I need a better bike. I own a car, but I need a better car. God's blessed me with a great house, but even a nicer house, right? And we're just playing this game down here on earth of like, who can get the most toys? Nothing wrong with enjoying what God's provided, but church, there's a lot more to life than just gathering a bunch of toys and trying to be as comfortable as we can. There's people that don't know Christ as our Savior. There's people that we love that don't know Christ as our Savior. God's heart is for the stranger that doesn't know Christ. So if we get away from this this teaching of hell, we really lose the reality of of what's important in, in this life. In verse 29, they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. So though the gate is narrow... There are many who find it. Yeah, there's many going down the road of destruction, but there's people coming from the kingdom of God from the east, the west, the north, and the south. Again, this rocks the view of the Jewish listener that it's not just Jews who are being saved. 
And indeed, there are the last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. You know, what in the world is this, this talking about, right? Is it just for kids getting into the mining van? If, hey, if you let your sister go first, then you'll be first, right? It's speaking about the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the last, in a sense, but they're trusting and receiving Christ as their Savior, and in a sense, they become first. But the Jewish people rejecting Christ, in a sense, become last, really coming to a place of fullness of trusting Christ at the second coming of Jesus. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Do you think the Pharisees are being genuine here? They're the ones that are actually plotting the death of Jesus. They're saying, hey, Herod wants, wants to kill you. You gotta get out of here. We're concerned with your, your safety and Jesus sees right through it. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform curses today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. He calls Herod a fox. He calls him out. Herod had killed John the Baptist. He's this deceptive man, and so Jesus calls him out on it. He says, go tell that fox. I'm not scared of him. The boldness of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to continue to go to Jerusalem and on the way, I'm going to cast out demons and perform cures. I wonder what the demonic attack was upon Jesus as he was heading towards Jerusalem. And Jesus just presses right into it, continues to set the captive free. Also, he predicts his resurrection. On the third day, I shall be perfected. Not three days I shall be in Jerusalem and die, but on the third day, the third day after his crucifixion, Christ is perfected. As you're examining, should you trust Christ as God? This is a big claim that Jesus is God and he's the only way of salvation. I think one of the things for you to look at is the empty tomb, that Jesus predicted his own death and his resurrection and he rose from the dead on the third day, just as he promised, just as he predicted and validated his claim that he's God. There's evidence behind this faith that Jesus is God. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, I'm going to continue to journey because it is that I would be killed in Jerusalem. The Pharisees coming out of Jerusalem, they're not looking out for his benefit, but it's the epicenter of this hatred towards Christ but it also goes much deeper that Jesus would be killed in Jerusalem. We go back to Genesis 22. God gave Abraham Isaac, the promised child. But then God surprises Abraham, says, I want you to offer up Isaac upon the altar. And interestingly enough, God says in a location that I will show you. So Abraham and Isaac journey, and the Lord says, this is the location. The location is Mount Moriah. God then tells Abraham, you don't have to sacrifice your son. I was testing you. But that location, Mount Moriah, becomes the Temple Mount. It's where the, the temple was built there in Jerusalem. Mount Moriah on this range, this mountain range, where lambs would be slain for sin, pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God. It was fitting, it was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy that Jesus would die in Jerusalem that he would die on Mount Moriah. 
So Christ comes and he lays down his life, fulfilling this picture in Genesis 22 of the father laying down his son. Aren't pictures so powerful? One of the things I love about the Old Testament is you get pictures of New Testament truths. This amazing truth that God gave his son for us is depicted with Abraham offering up Isaac. We get to the heart of Jesus. You guys ready for this? In verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. You'd think that maybe Jesus would be angry at Jerusalem, angry at the religious leaders, angry at the Pharisees who are trying to kill him, but it breaks his heart. We've all had those moments where we just have a sigh that's deep within us that we really even can't describe with words. It's that deep pain. It's just that, oh, And somebody asks us what we're feeling, and that's the most difficult question in that moment. I can't even begin to put into words what what I'm feeling. All all I've got is this this sigh of grief and and pain. And Jesus is crying out here. He's, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets being sent to the people of God, sent to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem killing the prophets. Jesus told a parable and a story of a man who owned a farm, owned a vineyard, and had someone take care of the vineyard and then sent the servant to see how the farm's doing and collect the harvest, collect the spoil. And instead, this steward, this caretaker of the farm, killed the servant. And this happened several times. And finally, I'll send my son. They'll listen to my son, but they they kill the son as well. And that spoke of Jesus. Here, the nation of Israel, Jerusalem, has killed all of these messengers, and now they're going to to kill Christ. But, But this breaks the heart of Jesus. And he says, How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. Here's Jesus speaking to the ones that are going to crucify him, and he's saying, My desire all along has been to bring you close as a hen brings her her chicks. A hen brings her chicks in for protection, for provision, right close to her heart. And this is what Jesus wants to do with Jerusalem. This is why I love the scriptures, and I think it's so important to study it in context as it was written, is yes, hell is real. Yes, if you reject Christ, All of your life, there is eternal separation, but it's not God's desire. It's not God's desire. God's desire is to bring you close, for you to trust his provision and to come under his care, to receive his grace and to receive his forgiveness. Peter writes, and he says, that God does not will or desire that any would perish. He doesn't want any to perish. God doesn't delight in sending people to hell. He longs for people to come to know Christ as their savior. I wonder how many people have come to know the Lord on their deathbed, where the Holy Spirit's just pleading with their hearts, would you consider Jesus one more time? And God in his grace saves them. But once again, why wait to the deathbed? Why take that risk? Jesus is worth believing and he is worth following. Who wasn't willing here? Was it Jesus or Jerusalem? Jerusalem wasn't willing. 
Jerusalem wouldn't respond and come close to the heart of Jesus. If you're trying to figure out what this whole relationship with God is, it's him drawing you close. This is what God's always longed for. It's for you to be up close and personal with his heart. Creates Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and every night comes and fellowships with them in the cool of the day. How awesome would that be? Sin hadn't entered the equation yet, just amazing fellowship with the Lord. Adam and Eve do sin and messed up that fellowship. And God longed for us to be in right relationship with him to the point where he sent his son. Jesus died and rose again so that nothing stands between us and the Father now. We're forgiven and we've got access to simply come close to the heart of God. God speaks of our relationship with him of us being his children. We're adopted sons and daughters of God. We're joint heirs of Christ. That speaks of close relationships. It speaks of us coming to his heart the way that a child comes to a parent. Also, we're told that Christ is the bridegroom and we're the bride. God is showing us in human relationship. You see the closeness of Parents and kids, that's how he wants to be close with us, even to a greater degree. You see a closeness of a husband and wife, and Jesus wants to be that close to us, even to a greater degree. And no human depicts it perfectly, correct? We don't see this picture perfectly with, with parents and kids. We don't see this picture perfectly with a husband and a wife, even the best of marriages, this side of heaven, well, you're not going to be married in heaven, so there we go. <laughs> I've found in my life that a lot of times it's pain, it's disappointment, it's unfortunately my own sin that God has used to bring me close to his heart. That's what God's intending to do. Are you willing? What's the pain? What's the disappointment? What's the, what's the hurt in your life? Come to the Father of comfort. Come to the Father of mercy and allow him to comfort you. Come under his provision. Come under his care. Jesus speaks a prophecy over Israel. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The house speaking of the temple. The, the temple is desolate spiritually. It's become a den of thieves. And Jesus says, you're not going to see me speaking to Jerusalem until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A prophecy of Jesus' second coming. Psalms 18 From Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 14, we know that Israel collectively, when Christ returns, is going to see Christ, ask him where he received those wounds, still bears the scars of the cross, the wounds of the cross, and it's at that point that they trust Christ. Now, don't get me wrong, there's lots of Jews that are saved now, currently, but as a nation, this will be the moment that they trust Christ. This is speaking of of Jesus' second coming. I want to leave us with an illustration from a book that I read uh, this week. I'm reading a book called Everybody Always by Bob Goff, G-O-F-F. And Bob is a, a lawyer. I actually got to hear him speak here recently. He was in Colorado Springs for Life Network's Gala. And he's a super down-to-earth guy. 
Like everybody at the gala was dressed up really nice, except for Bob Goff. You're kind of like looking at the beginning of the dinner and you're like, man, I really admire this guy's courage. Like he didn't dress up. He was in like ratty jeans, like an old dad sweatshirt and a really old Red Sox baseball hat. And you're like, I wish I had the courage to dress how I really wanted to at this thing, right? And then the dinner goes on and he's the guest speaker. He's this New York Times author and he gets up and and he shares. And in this book, everybody always, Bob has a big heart for Uganda. And in Uganda at the time, witch doctors had never been held accountable for any of the crimes that they had committed. Witch doctors have a lot of power in the Ugandan society and people fear them. So no judges would hold them accountable, police officers, people wouldn't be witnesses against them. And Bob went over to Uganda and he's like, I'm going to find the most powerful judge that I can, being a lawyer. So he ends up meeting one of the Supreme Court justices and they become friends. They develop a relationship. And Bob asks, if we can get someone to testify against a witch doctor, will you hear their case? And the judge says, yes. So more time goes on. There's a 10-year-old boy named Charlie and he gets kidnapped by a witch doctor And what the witch doctors will do is kidnap kids and then cut off their genitals and offer them up to their false gods and then leave the kids to die, leave the kids to to bleed out. And this is what happened to Charlie. Got kidnapped, got his genitals taken off, cut off, and then just left to die. But he didn't die. Someone found him. They were able to, to help him. So Bob goes to Uganda and finds Charlie goes from California to Uganda, says, Charlie, would you be willing to testify against this witch doctor? Could you recognize him? Yes, yes. So much courage from this 10-year-old boy. So they take the witch doctor to court. He's held accountable, thrown into prison. The prison that he's sent to, the witch doctor, was built in 1920 for 200 men. At current time, holds 2,000. Everybody knows if you go to this prison, you're going to die because of the conditions. Bob felt God putting on his heart to try to reach out to this witch doctor. And he didn't want to. He's like, this is the last thing that I want to do. I'm the justice guy. I'm I'm justice for this 10-year-old boy. And he'd become friends with, with Charlie. But God kept encouraging him in this. So Bob goes back to Uganda finds out what prison he's in. They won't let him in, but then he uses the lawyer card and he gets in and meets with this witch doctor. And the witch doctor starts to express that his dad had been a witch doctor and the weight of his sins and asking, is there any way that he could have forgiveness? And Bob was wrestling. I need to share the gospel with him, but there was even part of him that didn't want to share the gospel with him. He shared this narrow gate that Jesus died for our sins and rose again if we believe that that we're saved. And the witch doctor received Christ as his savior. Bob kept visiting him, made repeat trips to to go and visit him, and he kept growing in his faith. And Bob says, I think that we need to do an outreach in this prison. Maybe the warden will let you speak to the other prisoners. Bob says, I'm going to go ask. He goes and he asks, and the warden says yes, And the witch doctor shares Christ and several of the inmates get saved. And the former witch doctor is doing baptisms in the prisons. 
And the story goes on from there. I encourage you to pick up the book. It's, it's fascinating. But as I was reading that, it really stood out to me that Bob played the role of both justice and mercy. And more than we understand, God is just. And he has a heart for justice. And each kid that's been abused and taken advantage of, each spouse that has gone through their spouse being unfaithful, the damage of my anger, the damage of my lust, the damage of your sin, our sin, God's just. Just the way that Bob was just for that 10-year-old boy. It's the love of God that causes us to be held accountable for our sins. But God, even more so than Bob, is merciful in a way that absolutely blows our minds. That he can love us enough to call us out and say, you're a sinner, but I'm your savior. I went to the cross for you. I died for you because I love you. In just a moment, we're gonna celebrate communion together. And there's elements here in the front and elements in the back. And if you come to the table and take one set of cups, but I pray that communion for us this morning would be a special time with the Lord. That we would sit in this for, for a little bit. Man, what I deserve is hell. That's really how bad my sin is. But instead, God gave me his son. He gave me heaven. And if you haven't made that decision to receive Christ as your savior, this morning, would you trust him? This morning, would you call out to Jesus? As we pray, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to raise your hand. And online, I would encourage you to raise your hand as well. But don't make this mistake of thinking, man, simply being familiar with Jesus is enough. If God's touching your heart, that you're understanding I'm a sinner, but he's also touching your heart, that he died for you, that he rose again, and you're like, I'm ready to trust Christ. I'm ready to ask him to be my savior. I pray that you'd respond, that you'd have the courage to raise your hand. I'm not gonna embarrass you. This is between you and the Lord but I would encourage you to respond. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace and your forgiveness that you would come and die for our sins and rise again. You know our hearts and you, Jesus, knock upon the door of our lives. If this makes sense to you and you'd like to receive Christ as your savior, would you just raise your hand and raise it up high, leave it up and I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. We'll just wait for a few moments. Praise the Lord. Thank you for responding. Praise God. In the back, praise the Lord. Those that are responding online, Jesus sees you. Pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again. I receive your forgiveness. I turn from my sin and invite you to be the Lord of my life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. You can put your hands down. Father, I thank you for those that have responded to the gospel in faith. I thank you for your promise to grant eternal life. Would you bless them? Would you protect them? Would you grow them? In Jesus' name, amen.